0: We're going to be continuing our sermon series to the book of Job this morning, so if you'd like to follow along, it's Job chapter 13, starting at verse 13, through the end of chapter 14, so a little bit larger of a section, but remember we broke off halfway through chapter 13, there was a natural break there, and uh, the passage... Uh, lent itself to being cut off and ending there. And so we're going to pick up right at verse 13. And this also is one one connected passage all the way to the end of the chapter. It's on page 425 of the ESV Bible. And let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask, as always, that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you would open our eyes to see the true meaning of this passage. Help us to understand it. Help us also to apply this truth to our lives. And Father, show us Jesus in this passage. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're in junior high, if you can recall back when you were in junior high, you, you might remember that there are two kinds of teachers when it comes to reading out loud in class. The type, there's, the, the first type is the type that very methodically and very orderly goes up and down the rows. And so you can look ahead and know exactly where it's going to fall on you, and you can look at the, uh, the book and look over any unfamiliar words. So you can be prepared, you can be ready, because you know they're, they're going one right after the other. That's type number one. Type number two is the one that randomly picks students to read out loud. They might pick the first one in the first row, then they might jump to the back of the row, then they jump over in here, and then they do over in the middle, and then they do the one right next to them, and then they go over on the other side of the room. So you never know when it is going to be your turn to read <clears throat> out loud. And inevitably, there's always one student that gets caught daydreaming. There's one student who's just got their head on their hand, and they're maybe they're staring at the hair of the person in front of them or Maybe they're doodling three-dimensional cubes on their notebook paper or they're looking outside watching another class have PE or thinking about what they're going to do after school. It doesn't really matter. Their mind is roaming, it is wandering, and they're not paying attention to where the passage is in the text of the book. And so the teacher calls on them and they're immediately snapped out because they hear their name. Oh, huh, What? Please read, and then and then it's one of these. Uh, um, uh, and if they're lucky, there's a friend next to them. Or, and there's one thing to try to see where they're at. But the damage has been done. They're busted, and whatever the the penalty is, they they're, they're going to receive it. They caught day, They got caught daydreaming. It happens. In Job chapter 13 and 14, this morning we catch Job daydreaming. His mind is going to something other than than what he believes is reality. His his mind is wandering towards something and he he daydreams. It's almost a a what-if type of situation. And we catch Job in it. He decides to to let his mind wander and he, in the middle of describing the hopelessness of of man with, with sin not being dealt with, he says... What if things were different? I know, I know things don't work this way, but just what if you somehow took care of my sin? What if at, when, I, when I die, you, you, you dealt with it and then your wrath passed over me and then at a time of your choosing, you called me and raised me to new life and a new relationship with you? Wouldn't that be something? Joe daydreams about this. And of course, the covering of our sin and living in a right relationship with God is no daydream, it's reality. What Job could only daydream about, the church proclaims with certainty. So that is the big picture this morning. We want to see that takeaway for sure. It's no daydream, it's reality. But there's also something else here. There's also a takeaway for those who are in Christ who are also going through despair. Okay, those in Christ going through despair. So there's a takeaway there too—a word of hope. So let's read this now. This is Job 13 through the end of 14. Job speaks. Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let me come. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth, and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words, and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case, I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there that will contend with me? For then I will be, would be silent and die. Only grant me two things, that I, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand from, far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and you and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of a woman is is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, Look away from him, leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it would, will sprout again, and if its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put up branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away, and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. So our passage begins today at verse 13 and he says, let me have silence and I will speak. So this is not Job asking for his turn so he can respond to his three friends. This is Job saying, I'm going to speak to God. And he's preparing himself to directly address God in prayer. And if you remember back from last week, Job 13.3, But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. So in one sense he longs for that day in court when he can be vindicated. Well, he knows he's not going to get that day with the arbiter. That was also a daydream. some kind of mediator, which we also know isn't true. But instead he's going to come before God in prayer and he has a question, specifically he's going to ask God. And that's followed by the phrase, and let come on me what may. So this is risky business. Job is going before God and he's going to lay everything on the line and confront God, essentially, and ask him some pointed questions. And he realizes that for a sinful man to approach God, Uh, in in a confrontational manner, probably isn't the safest thing to do. So he proceeds, verse 14, why should I take uh, take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? He's acknowledging that this is risky business. And we might ask the question, what does that mean, take my flesh and my teeth? Probably means something like bite my tongue or place my tongue in between my teeth. Now that's risky because you know, if we do that, if you put your tongue in between your teeth and if you get jostled or bumped or if you jump or anything like that, you're you're probably going to injure yourself. So there are two phrases that mean essentially the same thing. This this is dangerous. And he asks the question, why should I do this? And the answer is because it's worth the risk. It's worth the risk for Job. He's so confident in God and God's judgment. He's so confident that God will do the right thing and treat him the right way. If only he can meet with him and talk with him and they can sit down and just kind of sort this whole thing out. Then he's confident that he'll be vindicated. Verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The ESV says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Um, If you see, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it says, uh, or behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. The ASV actually says the same thing. Behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. So either way, uh, depending on how the, the difficult Hebrew is handled, either way, both statements are translations that result in statements of faith. Okay? In one sense, he's saying the fear of death is, is not going to prevent me from approaching God. Either way, either if he does slay me, or if I, I have no hope that he's going to slay me, either way, regardless, I'm still going to him. I still hope in God. It's still worth confronting him and addressing him directly with my questions and concerns. Verse 16, this will be my salvation, that the godless will not come before him. Well, if he goes before God and confronts him in prayer, he's either going to be wiped out, in which case he was wrong, he's been corrected and proved wrong, or he's going to be vindicated. So if he survives this confrontation, this speaking with God, that will be his salvation. It will turn out for his good. Verses 17 and 18, keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Now he's talking to his friends. That's not to God, that's to his friends. And he's basically telling them, hey, Uh, keep listening, keep paying attention, you three friends, because I'm about to lay it on the line with God. And I want you to make sure you're seeing this uh, so that you're witnesses to my vindication or or what happens. And then finally, verse 19, one last uh, kind of um, pause before he jumps in. Who is there that will contend with me? For then I will be silent and die. In other words, he's saying, if there's anybody that can prove me wrong, before I address God directly, if there's anybody who can point out to some, some, some specific sins that I've done, is there anybody that can, can show me something? Then I'll be silent and die, and I'll, I'll drop this whole thing. Anybody? And of course, they can't. If you remember, his three friends uh, are, are charging him with sin, but they can't point to anything specifically. Remember, they, they've concluded it must be some secret hidden sin that have caused all this suffering to, to be brought upon him. But they, they can't point to anything specifically because Job has lived a blameless life. So he asks the question: anybody? Seeing none, I will now move forward and address God in prayer. He begins with making a couple requests. Grant me two things. One, withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread uh, the dread of you terrify me. Take away this pain and suffering. Let me enter into your presence and address you without being terrified of you. And number two, then call and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. He's saying, either way, I can start it, you can start it, but I want a real-time conversation with you, God. We've got to get this figured out. So after making these two requests, he gets right to the point in verse 23. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. He gets right to the point. He's asking God, he says, uh, alright, just tell me, be brutally honest with me, what is it? Because if there's something I've done, if there's some specific sin, I want to know about it. I can't see it. You need to point it out to me. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? He's back to this I can't figure this out. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? God, from Job's perspective, God is treating him like an enemy, not like a friend. Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? What's an autumn leaf like? Not on a rainy day, but on a dry, dry day. It's it's brittle, weak, dead, cut off. That's what Job's saying. Why? I'm already down. Why do you keep coming after me? Why do you keep bringing these fresh troops after me, one after another? Why does my skin and disease continue to break out afresh? Why? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Job thinks, maybe this is delayed punishment. And he thinks back to when he was younger and he says, you know what, this is payback. This is for all those things that I did wrong when I was a youth and a young man. And they're coming back to haunt me. And now God requires a reckoning. You put my feet in stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Remember, stocks were a punishment designed to immobilize the offender and also to expose them to public disgrace and shame. That's where Job's at. He really doesn't have any options in life right now. He can't do anything. He doesn't have the strength or the health to do anything. And he's exposed to public shame. He's a laughing stock. Remember that from last week? I'm a laughing stock. joke said. I realize that. He doesn't understand what's going on. He wants to rule out the possibility that maybe he has missed it. Maybe there is some kind of sin that has brought all this on him. And he wants to rule that out. Because it doesn't make sense to him. Remember, this is a man who practiced continual faith. We saw that in chapter one, the opening verses. Job was a man of continual faith. He lived rightly before God, blameless, fearing God, turning from sin. And when he did when he did sin, when, so when there is, was ever a known sin or something came to light, he offered sacrifices. Remember, he continually offered sacrifices, not only for himself and for others. So, his his children. So, Job's thinking, look, if if I can't be right with God through living rightly and blamelessly and through sacrifice, who can? How is this possible? So, he either wanted to be vindicated or corrected and proved wrong by God. Well, we might call this next section Despair, chapter 14, uh, the end of chapter 13, the beginning of 14, and really all of 14 except for the daydream. Despair. This is his emotional collapse, another one. He's considered his sin, he's considered the state that he's in, and he knows where sin leads to. Sin leads to death. And so what follows are a series of images that capture and describe the mortality of man. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten, slowly, slowly, Wasting away. Job compares man to a rotten thing. Okay, we know what this is like. Anybody buy a bunch of bananas and let them sit on their counter? They look great when you bring them home from the store, but two weeks later, they don't look that great. Like a flower that withers, flowers look so bright and colorful, and even when they're freshly cut, but after a few weeks in the vase, even if you put in a little packet of food and keep watering them, they don't look too good. They change color, they fade, they shrivel up. Like a shadow, shadows are clearly visible with very distinct lines. If you go out on a bright sunny day and a shadow is cast from the side of a building, you you could take a piece of paper and exactly draw the, the, the contours of that building. They're very distinct. They don't last long. They fade. So all these things, whether it's produce from the ground, clothes that grow old, flower that withers, shadow that disappears, all these things are a description of man's slow progression through life towards death. And he concludes, and we have to agree, we're all produce. We're all a bunch of bananas. We're all cut flowers. We're on our way to death. That's the way these bodies are as a result of the fall. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. Everybody is born of a woman. Everybody inherits original sin. Everybody's days are full of troubles, not just the wicked. We all experience hardship in life. And he knows where this leads. Verses 3 through 6. We won't read it again, but we need to summarize it. Do you open your eyes on such a one? Such a one as what? Such a one as Job just described man who's, who's born into sin and who is on this slow progression towards death like cut flowers, uh, why bring somebody like that into judgment? Remember, Job is thinking, hey, if, if right living and sacrifice doesn't count towards being right with God, then, then why judge him at all? Why, why go through the motions? Who can hope for vindication and approval from God if sin is not dealt with there's, there's, no hope. Psalm one forty three two captures the essence of what Job is saying in fourteen three through six. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. If we're all sinners, if nobody can be made right, please don't even begin to judge us. It's not productive. Is there any hope for man? Is there any hope for man to stand before God and withstand his judgment? And the the conclusion is, as long as sin is not dealt with, then no, there is no hope. There's none. Verses 7 through 9 and 10 through 12 are descriptions and and a little illustration uh, dealing with the finality of death. We don't need to walk through them verse by verse. We can just, again, summarize. Trees... Even though they're cut down, if you see the stump in the earth, after a while, you can see a shoot that shoots out from it. I think we've all seen an example of this. Trees that have been cut down, and then you still see these shoots trying to to come out of it and and live again, and it grows. And then verses 10 through 12, Job says, but that's not the way it is with man. You cut man down, that's it. There's no shoot of life that grows up. There's no uh, second chance after man is cut down. Yeah, skip the daydream. Let's back up. Verse 13. Okay, this is a long section, but remember, he's, uh, he's talking to everyone. Oh, oh, trees not living I'm sorry. Yes, uh, excuse me. So trees, no. Man, man does not live again. Trees, yes. The daydream. Verses 13 through 17. Oh, that you would hide me to shield, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would point me a set time and remember me. Job understands that Sheol is the place of the dead and under his understanding at that time it was a place where everybody went to, they died and there was no coming back, it was just the place of the dead. Life was over, it's this shadowy existence. But, says Job, if you hide me there until your wrath passes a time of your choosing then you could call me back and renew me You could restore me, that renewal is another word for resurrection. You could raise me up again until your wrath, when your wrath has passed, then things would be different. Then then uh, you, you wouldn't be separated from me because of your sin. You would long to be with me. He said, Wouldn't that be something if my transgression could be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity? Remember, Job is daydreaming right here. In fact, he says in the beginning, if a man dies, shall he live again? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, he just established that. Remember the tree stump and the man comparison. But he's saying, what if? What if that were the case? If only that were true. If only God, if only God made a way so that we could um, have our sin dealt with And he could call us back into newness of life and we could live in a right relationship with him after the wrath of God has passed over and our iniquity has been dealt with and sealed up in a bag. If only that were possible. Job daydreams. And of course, brothers and sisters, this is true. This is reality. This is made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. What Job is daydreaming the church proclaims with certainty it is possible. But, verses 18 and 19 back to despair. But I guess I need to stop daydreaming. Back to despair and hopelessness because just as the mountains fall and crumble and rocks are removed and water washes things away so you destroy the hope of man. Why is the hope of man destroyed? Because sin is not dealt with sin is, is still there. And no one can withstand the judgment of God, not even the strongest of people. Just if, if the mountains crumble before God, not even the strongest man can stand before the judgment of God. There is no hope for the sinner unless sin is dealt with. Verse 20, you prevail forever against him and he passes, death. You change his countenance and send him away, Death. Verses 21 and 22, man is cut off from the living. No longer does he have any awareness or or sees anything, even his children. if If they're raised up or if they're brought low, it doesn't matter. The dead have no awareness of that. They're cut off from the land of the living. The only thing man knows about when he's dead is pain and mourning for himself. Well, if we had to summarize this passage, if we had to take this passage, Job's daydream we have to summarize it, we'd say something like this Job prepares to risk it all as he directly addresses God because he wants to know his specific sins. He wants God to tell him, because in his mind, if righteous living and sacrifice doesn't cover sin and take care of it, then what does? And he concludes, of course, nothing. He concludes that no man can be uh, right before God and can, can stand before him. All die because of his, his sin. But then he daydreams. If only there was a way that God would deal with sin, if he would take it away and take away his wrath, if he would, after a time a man dies, be raised to newness of life, then live in a right relationship with God. If only that were true, then things would be uh, great. But he concludes But, however, that's only a daydream, and as it is, there is no hope. Um, All we have to look forward to is death. So if we want to apply this, and we do, let's start with affirming that last part. Without the daydream that Job has, all man has to look forward to is death. That part is true. We can affirm that. We can affirm that last little bit of hopelessness after the daydream section where he goes back to despair and says all we have to look forward to is death. That's actually true. Remember verse 14, 4, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. You die. You're cut off. So number one, without your sin being dealt with, there is only hopelessness. And in fact, it's worse than Job portrays. It's worse. So I want to... Job made the connection between sin and death. I want to extend that and, and make the connection between sin, death, judgment, and second death. So sin has ushered in death. I think we can all agree on that point. Sin is not, or excuse me, death is not natural. Death is an intruder. We were not created to, to grow old, get sick, and die, and have all this corruption and creation. Death is an intruder, It's not natural, it's the result of sin. Romans 5.12 says this, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So sin brought death. 1 Corinthians 15, by a man came death, and in Adam all die. He's going back to that first sin. Adam is a representative head, sin, and through Adam's sin came death. Death is a result of sin, And then of course Hebrews 9.27 it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So we've got this link. Sin, death, and then judgment. Comes after death. There are no second chances. There are no do-overs. There are no further opportunities to think about it. There are no appeals. There are no more opportunities to repent or believe or change your mind once death happens. Anyone who dies dies Without having sin dealt with, faces judgment and will be judged by their sins. And we know how that turns out. Romans six thirteen or six twenty three, for the wages of sin is death. And it's not just talking about physical death; it's talking about the second death. Revelation twenty thirteen through fifteen, and the sea gave up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who are in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible teaches that if, if someone does not have their sin dealt with, and they face the judgment of God, they go to the second death. And the second death is an eternity in the lake of fire. God uses this language to describe the lake of fire, and he's also given us fire in in our lives and in our world so that we can make that connection. Fire is wonderful for heat and light and cooking food and, and, and all the good things that fire provides, warmth. But we all know that if you stick your hand into the fire, It's not long at all before you're in excruciating pain. That's there as a lesson for us. God gave us fire in real life, and so when he talks about the lake of fire, we can make that connection. Oh, bad place, place of pain. An eternity of being burned in fire, eternal conscious torment. So Job is right. There is no hope without sin being dealt with and in fact it's worse than he made it out to be Job says um, sin, death and then judgment to to the end we're saying sin, the Bible teaches sin, death, judgment second death so it's much worse but the good news is this Job's daydream is actually a reality so number two, a covering of our sin God's wrath passing over us God calling people to new life, being raised in newness of life, and in an eternal right relationship with God. All those things are true. All those things are a reality through faith in Jesus Christ. A covering of our sin, Romans 4, 7-8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God's wrath passing over us, Romans 5-9. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God calling people to new life, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, and those who be predestined, he also called, and those who be called, he also justified, and those who be justified, he also glorified. Being raised in newness of life, Romans 6.4, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are we seeing this? Everything Job says in his daydream, everything he wishes for and longs for, it's actually reality through faith in Christ. Eternal right relationship with God, Revelation 22, 4 and 5. They will see his face, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and he will, they will reign forever and ever. It's a reality. What Job could only daydream about, the church proclaims with certainty. Because God has revealed it. It is true. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. Job's daydream is the truth of the gospel. We don't have to sit here and say, what if it's real? If there's anyone here today who has not turned to faith in Jesus Christ, I would lay out the truth of scripture, scripture before you. I would show you it's much worse, actually, than Job had made it out to be. That's not a daydream. The part about, uh, about eternal lake of fire, that's, that's reality. God calls people by convicting them of their sin. If there's any conviction of your sin, if you're feeling any sort of tender conscience at all, I would ask you to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. He will reject no one. He will reject no one who comes to him in faith, repents of their sin, and asks for forgiveness. So we don't want to let that go. That's the big picture. I want us to see the the reality from the daydream. But there's also another takeaway for those in Christ, for believers who have already had the assurance of salvation. There's something else. It's called hope in the midst of despair. Hope in the midst of despair. Job was a believer. He trusted God. And yet he was spiraling into despair. This was an emotional collapse. Feelings of hopelessness. Job trusted God. Remember, even though he slayed me, I still hope in him. He trusted God. But at the same time, he was done He'd had enough. He felt finished. He felt like he couldn't go on. Let me just die. Twice, up to this point in the book of Job, twice, at a minimum, we've seen him expressing those feelings of of, Lord, just let me die. If you would take my life right now, that would be fine with me. Those are words of despair for a believer. This is a dangerous place for believers to be. It's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place to camp out. And maybe you're there right now or maybe you will be there at some point. Feelings of of losing all joy, nothing to look forward to, really. Just kind of increasingly numb towards everything. No drive, no energy. A feeling of impending doom. Don't really get excited about anything. No urge to make future plans. What's the point? When believers reach this point of despair, sometimes they, they turn to sin, sometimes they turn to idolatry, sometimes they they start living recklessly, sometimes they just completely cut off. But almost always they, they decide to check out, they, they pull back. That's why it's so dangerous. Thomas Brooks, who was a reform pastor during the 1600s, wrote, despair is Satan's masterpiece. It carries men headlong to hell as the devils did the herd of swine into the deep. Despair is Satan's masterpiece. Do you believe that? Those that underestimate the power of despair have never been in its grip. There was a town in Maine called Flagstaff, Maine. It's got its name because supposedly Benedict Arnold passed through there um, and planted a, a flagpole, and they, they kept that going. It's been switched out a couple times, uh, times, but supposedly it's still in the same spot that, that Benedict Arnold placed a flagpole. That's why it's called Flagstaff, Maine. And people were drawn there originally because of its fertile soil and access to the Kennebec River. And they, they built a sawmill and it started to, to flourish. People more and more people came, and it was like any other uh, town. It had a main street and shops and, and houses. But at the turn of the century, the power demands for modern life caused Central Maine Power to develop a plan to build a hydroelectric plant on the Kennebec River. One problem, they would have to dam up that portion of the river, which meant they would have to flood and completely cover and destroy the town of Flagstaff, Maine. And an interesting thing happened. From the time that the proposal was made to the completion, when the dam was already actually built and they were were ready to flood the the town, during that in-between time the town began to fall into disrepair. If a, if a building needed painted painting and, and the paint started to peel, they just let it go. If a window was broken, eh, just let it be broken. And slowly over time, you could see the town just increasingly deteriorate and and get in worse shape and, and look terrible, and so by the time they were actually ready to flood the place, it looked like an abandoned town. And one resident summed up what happened, and he said this, where there is no hope for the future, there is no work in the present. When there is no hope for the future, there's no work in the present. That's what despair does. If you as a believer have no hope in the future, if you give in to despair and camp out on that, then there's not going to be any work in the present. If you think you've been taken out of the game, you're not going to play like you're in the game. That's just the way it works. Despair is Satan's masterpiece. It can render the strongest believer inert, just make them completely useless for the kingdom. But they can still go about their daily lives and try to, you know swing from day to day, get through. But there's not going to be any drive, any motivation. Despair neutralizes that. It it it, it takes away any kind of desire to to engage in faithful service to Christ and his church. So if the enemy has ensnared you with despair, he has indeed won a victory. So maybe this is you right now. I mean, we've all got our our outward lives that we show and then we've got our inward lives. So maybe this is you, or maybe this will be you at some point in your life. I would do a couple things. Number one, I would ask you this. Is it as bad as Job? Have all your children died suddenly? Have you taken? Have, has everything been taken away? Are you literally penniless? Everything you've worked and built your entire life gone? Has your spouse turned against you? Are you experiencing public shame? Is your reputation smeared? Are you a laughing stock? And are you continually, night and day, twenty-four-seven, and ex- experiencing excruciating pain? And your health is is gone, and it looks like you're going to die. Are all those things true? I think the answer has to be for all of us, no. No. Okay, so it's not as bad as Job. And we'll, we'll wrap up with this, and then keep it simple, because remember, there's a lot of reoccurring themes. The whole book is about Job and suffering, so some of this you've heard. Number one, God is the sender of your suffering. Number two, God knows what he's doing. Whatever your circumstances, there for your good and his glory. Number three, God is in control of this time of testing and suffering in your life. Number four, God has determined determined a limit to your trial. Because God is the sender, he has determined a limit. This far and no more. And then finally, number five, since God is the sender, God is the one who also removes the trials and the testing and the suffering. That's a huge encouragement to realize that God is both the sender but he also determines the limit and he will remove it. So I would encourage you to be as faithful as you can be during this season. Do not give in to despair. Christ has called you to faithful service and to trust him, not to give in to self-pity and despondency. In Christ there is hope. Not hope meaning, uh, I think it'll happen, yeah, we'll see, 50-50, Kind of a dice roll, if it turns out good. No. Hope with certainty. There are a couple definitions. This one's a modified version of Lawson's. Hope is this. The positive expectation of certain glorious future that gives strength to the believer in his present difficulty. Positive expectation of a certain glorious future that gives strength to the believer in his present difficulty. That's the hope that we have. We all have a chapter 42 coming. God will renew you. He will restore you. In Christ, Jesus has dealt with your sin. And in Christ, there is hope for the believer in the midst of suffering. Amen.